In April 1942, the Nishikahama family packed as much rice, canned food, tea, dishes, and pots and pans as they could carry, and boarded a Union Steamship Company boat from Vancouver to Squamish, British Columbia. The mother of the family, Sawai, had just given birth to her fifth child one month prior. Writing in her memoir years later, Sawai recalled how impressed she was by the imposing cliffs and the granite-faced mountains in Squamish. After arriving, the family took a train that wound through valleys and along a river, ending up in a town called Bridge River late at night. The next morning, a truck arrived to carry them up Mission Mountain. The children sat lined up on a long wooden bench in the back of the truck as it drove along the curved road, and Sawai's ears popped as the road wound up and up. Finally, they arrived at their new home, the Minto Mines Japanese-Canadian internment camp. In 2021, Sawai's second eldest daughter, Grace Echo Thompson, published a translation of her mother's memoir alongside her own childhood experiences of the internment of people of Japanese ancestry in Canada during the Second World War. Today, at 89 years old, Grace is still sharing this story and spoke with me over Zoom from her home in Vancouver. That conversation, after the music. Canada's war effort is a voluntary effort. The sad thing was, we knew before anyone else when a ship went down. I went home every day and had to lie about my boring job as a typing clerk and always change the subject. If the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. Okay, I was uh, born in, uh, in uh, Stevenson's Fisherman Hospital, the Japanese Fisherman Hospital. And when I say hospital, it sounds kind of wonderful, but uh, recently I saw the photo of the hospital and it was just an old house. <laughs> and uh, but anyways, that's where I was born on October 15, 1933. So uh, uh, after I was born in Stevenson, we, uh, my father getting the job in Vancouver, uh, we moved uh, to Alexander Street, and that is where we were living. My father going to work every morning, uh, dressed in a three-piece suit. And I remember really enjoying uh, looking at his uh the the vest pocket where he had his his uh you know the watch fob in there as a kid i used to always take it out and look at it grace's parents were both immigrants from japan her father tor saburo arrived in victoria british columbia in 1921 with a plan to join his older brothers as fishermen but he eventually became the buyer for a codfish cooperative society in Vancouver, always dressed in his three-piece suit. Just before this, in 1929, he returned to Japan to marry a bride who had been selected by his parents. After the marriage, Torsaburo and Sawai returned to British Columbia to begin their lives as husband and wife. In her very early childhood, Grace, who at the time was named Eko, lived with her family around the Powell Street area of Vancouver. As her mother explains in her memoir, the area surrounding Powell and Alexander Streets were populated with Japanese-Canadian-owned businesses. There were doctors and dentists, as well as fish markets, bathhouses, restaurants, and more. The Powell Street area was a self-sufficient community for Japanese immigrants and people of Japanese ancestry in Vancouver. This was an immigrant town, more or less. So uh, uh, there, there was a language school. And of course, too, that we were in touch with our grandmother. We had never met, but we used to write to her in Japanese. And she used to send us storybooks and things. And so that was the life, and uh, all along Powell Street area was a, uh, was a real town. 
The Powell Street area served as more than just a cultural hub for Japanese Canadians. It also allowed people in the area to be fairly economically self-sufficient. Why would Japanese Canadians and other immigrants have lived in such tight communities like Powell Street at the time? There are economic reasons and also because of racism. Uh, Grace also talks about, um, this is on page 34 of the memoir, that there was Hastings Mill uh, that was located in this Powell Street area that hired uh, Japanese and other Asian immigrants as they arrived. This was in the late 19th century. So then, of course, naturally, um, boarding houses were, you know, established to lodge uh, people working in the area. And as well, they needed businesses where they could actually shop and, uh, you know, be allowed to go to restaurants. And so uh, people of Japanese ancestry also started businesses in that area. I think it was really central, uh, probably really important uh, place in terms of support. We're hearing from Dr. Mona Oikawa, associate professor in the School of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at York University. Dr. Oikawa conducts research on the internment of Japanese Canadians during the Second World War and has interviewed many women who experienced internment. She also knows Grace personally. But, you know, people clearly lived in other places in British Columbia. Um, my own mother uh, grew up on the island in Chimenas. Um, and, you know, I interviewed women who did not grow up in the Palestine area, but clearly went there, you know, with parents uh, to shop and also meet with other people in the community. But it was really a central place. So institutions also were established, like the Japanese Language School and other really important institutions that we also lost uh, because of the internment. So, so it was a, a typical Canadian town, uh, you know, and most Canadian towns in those days were immigrant towns anyways. Uh, so that's where we were living. And uh, my mother was feeling really happy there because, she, you know, when she married my father, she was thinking that she was coming to, uh, to Canada with optimism uh, of a new life in the new world because his, her father also had been to Canada, worked in Canada many years before. So she was uh, quite excited about this new life she was starting. Uh, but then, of course, within 12 years, that life was ended. Twelve years after Grace's parents settled together in British Columbia, Canada declared war on Japan. The decision to declare war was in part fueled by a military attack by the Imperial Japanese Navy on the American naval base at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. The same day, Japan also attacked Hong Kong, where approximately 2,000 Canadian soldiers were stationed. Fearing an attack similar to Pearl Harbor, Canada decided to declare war on Japan that same day, issuing the official proclamation on the next day, December 8, 1941. The declaration of war also led to increased public pressure on the government to force the Japanese Canadians on the West Coast to disperse. Even those who were naturalized citizens or Canadian-born were viewed as enemy by many people in the country. People experience racism because white politicians and business owners and the citizenry wanted not only Japanese Canadians, but also people of Asian ancestry to be uh, removed from the province. So as Anne Sanahara Kanadachi and others have explained, uh, this moment uh, during the war was really opportune in that the people who'd been organizing to uh, get rid of them before the war seized on that moment uh, to pressure the Mackenzie King government to detain them and then hopefully, you know, deport them. Days after the declaration of war, 
an order in council was passed requiring mandatory registration of all persons of Japanese origin with the Register of Enemy Aliens. No matter if they were immigrants, naturalized citizens, or Canadian-born, all Japanese Canadians were deemed enemy aliens. What's the impact of a term like enemy alien on people of Japanese ancestry and their place in Canada? Well, 75% were uh, either naturalized or were born in Canada. So, you know, as I've described, the material impact was that they were construed as not Canadian and not deserving of the rights that other Canadians had. Um, so that that term, as many other terms that the government used, passed them as outside of the nation, as not belonging here as other Canadians did. And I think the long-term effects also, you know, in terms of psychologically, um, you read in Grace's memoir that, you know, she was she was formed in, you know, a Canadian education system to su subscribe to notions of democracy that, um, you know, Canada uh, professed that it held. However, being targeted as an en enemy alien herself I think had had quite deep and you know lasting consequences as we read in the memoir and she really does discuss that and reflect on that. On February 26th, a notice was issued by the Minister of Justice ordering all Japanese Canadians to leave the coast. The BC Security Commission was quickly established to plan and implement the expulsion of Japanese Canadians. Most men would be sent to road camps, and women and children sent to detention sites known as internment camps. After the initial expulsion orders, it wasn't clear where Grace and her family would be sent. By this time, Sawai was heavily pregnant with another child, and was concerned about who would care for her family while she was in the hospital. So the decision was made to move the family back to Steveston to live with Grace's uncle while they sorted out where they'd eventually go. Yes, my mother my mother thought that that all her precious things she put into her brother-in-law's uh, back shed and locked it up and everything thinking we were going to come back at the end of the war. In fact, the day after she that we moved to Steveston, the baby was born. But the, um, one of the major reasons why we moved there, too, is because my uncle's house was located next door to the hospital. <laughs> so I remember as kids, uh, my, my brothers and I, uh, uh, my mother would look out from the hospital window and we would be waving to her. So that kind of memory still remains with me. And so, so my mother was carrying a 40-day-old baby when we were interned. By October 1942, an estimated 21,000 Japanese Canadians were forcibly removed from their homes. 60% were Canadian-born, and 15% were naturalized citizens. Most were dispersed across numerous internment camps in the BC interior and road labor camps. It depended where you were sent, but the interior camps were located in Greenwood, Caslow, Sandin, Denver, Roseberry, Tashmi in the Slocan area, um, which were Slocan City, Bay Farm, Lemon Creek, and Popoff. The housing was very poor. Um, one of the women I interviewed who was sent to Slocan, um, one of the first families uh, lived in a tent because um, there were no buildings to house them. Some of them were sent to abandoned mining towns, and most of them were abandoned mining towns. And Tashmi actually was constructed specifically to detain Japanese Canadians. It didn't exist before. And to just to underline that Tashmi, the name, was named after the three commissioner, well, the, the chair of the BC Security Commission, Taylor, so T-A, Shiras, who was the assistant commissioner, S-H, and then Mead was the third, was M-E. So they used the first two initials of their last names, 
to name Tashmi, which was the biggest uh, detention site and was built specifically to intern them because they didn't have enough places to send them, uh, you know, in terms of places where they could be guarded. And, um, and they did this very quickly, you know, um, within the year they had to find places to send them. Grace, in your mother's memoir, she speaks pretty matter-of-factly about having to move and this kind of forcible internment. But what do you think this period of uncertainty was like for your parents? I think um, uh, they accepted what was happening to them because it was Japan that declared the war. Well, I I should say Japan started the war and Canada declared the war. So... uh, I think they accepted as something that, you know, they had no control over. So uh, the only thing was they didn't know what was going to happen to them next, you know, uh, where they were going to be moved to. And then the saddest thing is my father, he went to work every day in a three-piece suit is because after that, the only time he wore his suit was to go to a funeral. His work was all in sawmills. And so for the rest of his uh, working uh, life, he was working in sawmills and in, in labor. So the family packed up what few possessions they could bring and began the journey by boat, train, and truck to their new home in the self-supporting camp Minto. Self-supporting camps were different from other internment sites because the interned inhabitants actually rented the land they were detained on, allowing them to generally choose which site they'd move to. This meant they had to have access to enough resources to pay for their own internment. In her memoir, Grace indicates that 1,161 internees paid the government's expenses for their own uprooting. We were told uh, how many pounds of things each one of us could take. But uh, going to a self-supporting site like Minto uh, rather than going to a government-prepared one, uh, you know, other places. Uh, uh, most people who were interned were told that they can take only one suitcase of things. But if you were going to Minto, uh, the reason for it being called self-supporting is that you paid your, for your transportation. Can you imagine? You're being interned. You're uprooted from your home, but you had to pay for your your transportation so that If you take heavy things, you paid for it. And so there was really an economic motive on the part of, again, the white citizenry who were watching people who they didn't want to be in the province succeed. And uh, as as we learn through Grace's memoir, and other sources that um, that property was confiscated. Those businesses were confiscated. Those farms were confiscated uh, while people were interned. And the proceeds actually were used to pay for the internment. So, you know, um, there was obviously an economic motive too. You know, because they weren't allowed... um, for the most part, to take their possessions with them, uh, they had to either sell them really quickly or give them away. Uh, Women that I interviewed uh, would give away really precious items like a musical instrument to someone that they cared for in the community. Um, And... Others, as was described in the memoir and you just described, uh, thought that they would be returning. So, you know, some of them buried them on, you know, their property, stored them in cabinets. And as we learn in the memoir and also in other sources and autobiographies, um, a lot of it was looted um, and taken. And anything that they couldn't, carry that was actually um the the british columbia security commission that was given the responsibility to um kind of oversee the expulsion also established a custodian of enemy property so whatever the custodian took was eventually sold by the custodian 
and but with very little of the proceeds going to the people actually owned whatever was confiscated. And so the uh, so the uh, uh, people who went to places like Minto, there were several self-supporting places, uh, were already established uh, Japanese Canadians. Uh, because my parents got rid of everything and moved in with my uncle, they, they only had, you know, they didn't have furniture and things anymore. But uh, in Minto, there were many people who moved from Vancouver or Steveston, wherever, totally uh, with their furniture and everything. Uh, in Minto, they rented a whole house and they were living just like anybody else. And I didn't, as a kid, I didn't even record didn't even compare because uh, I meant to uh, I think that my family uh, moved to Minto a, a bit late because of the baby and uh, so uh, uh, most of the houses were gone and so they had to pull a house in the outskirts a miners old miners house because this was a Minto used to be a gold mining town uh, so they pulled an old house uh, into town uh, and uh, fixed it up and that's where we lived and it was a quite a large house, but uh, because my uncle was with us too, but we didn't have uh, we didn't bring any furniture. The only piece of furnishing that my uncle brought was his Japanese wooden bathtub, <laughs> and the bathtub is the kind that you you install into a room, and inside the wooden tub is a is a metal stove. And you heat it from the outside, you know, to heat the uh, water. So we we had that one luxury, being able to have a hot bath every night. But anyways, uh, uh, my parents uh, didn't take furniture. So when we moved there, tables and chairs were uh, actually uh, uh, built of logs and things. But uh, I guess they must have been able to get beds because we had proper beds and stove and things. While living in Minto, Grace's father found work at a sawmill to support the family. In order to support themselves, people in internment camps had to either have access to their own funds, to work, or more often than not, a combination of the two. People in other uh, detention sites who didn't have access to funding or, or uh, to money their relatives who were sent to uh, the road camps had to send a portion of their pay, um, and that went into the government coffers that was used to, you know, uh, fund these sites. Um, clearly, the federal government did fund in part, but as much as possible, the people detained also had to contribute, which is, yeah, very, very troubling, um, and often something that's that's not actually known that funds, you know, from the sale of property was put into a fund for the person, but they had to draw on, on those funds actually to pay for um, certain things that they needed in the internment sites, which um, meant that basically they, they had no money left at the end of the internment. And those who went to self-support camps as well, I mean, the savings that they had, you know, dwindled over those many years that they were there. It was a necessity. I mean, the whole scheme of, of sending men to self, to the road camps was in part to actually fund the other sites, the carceral sites. And men eventually also were sent to, you know, work on farms in Ontario. Uh, Premier Hepburn actually had people who had been expelled from British Columbia working on his farm. So, you know, this was, an, as I argue in my book, it was a national project in which many people participated and from which many Canadians benefited. As an immigrant from Japan, Sawai had not learned English and ensured that Grace continued her Japanese language lessons while interned. These lessons not only connected Grace to her heritage, but also allowed her to act as her mother's translator throughout her life. How do you think these Japanese language lessons shaped your identity? Well, for sure. Uh, at that time, of course, I was angry 
because all my friends were out playing. And every day after school for one hour, I had to go to my mother's class. So I continued my Japanese language lesson. And of course, for my mother, that was important because she's an immigrant. She didn't have the English language and she depended on me for everything. But throughout her lifetime, uh, most of her lifetime, I was her interpreter. And she did a good job in that I could do that. And, uh, and every day after school, as I say, I had to learn to read and write. And in, in, in any event, every day I'm speaking to her Japanese at home. My, my brothers, uh, you know, even though they were speaking to my mother in Japanese, uh, they, they sort of lost it in time. And, uh, because they, they never learned, learned the language. They just learned how to say the few words was necessary. In the earlier days, I used to feel angry that, that my friends were playing and I had to come home and do this extra study. And then after that, because I have a baby sister, the baby sister strapped to my back while my mother's cooking dinner. You know, so my life was very different from most young people. The role of additional child support fell to Grace, even though she was the second eldest, because her older sister had been sent to Japan for a visit with relatives shortly before the war broke out. Once Japan had entered the conflict, it was impossible for her to travel home. So Sawai spent the duration of the war and numerous years after wondering after the well-being of her oldest daughter in Japan. I'm, I'm sure it was very difficult for her, but then remember that she had four children you know, myself, two brothers, and a new baby. So so she was busy enough, you know. But uh, she does mention in her in her memoir that she used to cry every night. Why did I send her? Because after all, she was her first child. Yeah. Despite the nights of uncertainty, Sawai did her best for the four children she had with her in Canada, making sure they were still cared for throughout internment. One of the only possessions she brought with her to Minto was her sewing machine, which she used to ensure the children always had presentable clothing to wear. You know, my mother was, I think, very special in that way. The sewing was the major thing of importance to her. We never had, we never bought magazines or anything, but it, whenever she found anything or Eaton's catalog, she would be looking through that. And then, so I was always dressed properly. You know, she sold everything. And amazing, too, that she had the uh, ability to uh, sew a proper style for that period. Because in our family portraits, she's wearing a nice dress that she sold for herself. And, uh, and, and the kids, too, we were all dressed properly. And, uh, and then during the wartime, too, when uh, my, my father's suits of which he had several, uh, were it turned into my, my brother's dress clothes. Because of her ability to sew, too, even as we moved away from the internment site post-war, and we were still under restrictions, but uh, the townspeople finding out my mother's sews uh, brought back for alteration or even asked her uh, to sew clothes for them. So my mother felt really... Uh, proud of herself that she could do that at that time, which brought in extra, uh, uh, you know, income. Sawai's work to maintain a put-together image for her children is one type of care that was really common in internment camps. The government put uh, women and children, and actually what they called non-able-bodied elders or people in, in the interior camps, they were... They were responsible for taking care of the children. I argue that women who took care of children were actually resisting um, and, you know, kind of figuring out or negotiating, how, how do I do this in these circumstances, you know, so that my children aren't harmed or are less harmed, right? And you see that in the memoir as well, you know, in terms of you know, uh, trying to take care of the children, but also Grace, who also um, was responsible for taking care of her siblings. 
and her reflections on, you know, what her mother didn't tell her, probably to protect them. And I think, you know, that kind of complicated negotiation of a very difficult situation was also a form of resistance. On August 4th, 1944, after over two years of internment, Prime Minister Mackenzie King stated the intention that all Japanese Canadians should be dispersed. Then in 1945, Prime Minister King issued a new order in council, giving interned people two choices. They could volunteer to be repatriated to Japan, or they would be required to move east of the Rockies. And it's important to note here that repatriation is a pretty inaccurate term, because many Japanese Canadians had never lived in or even visited Japan before. In her memoir, Sawai wonders whether the family should consider moving to Japan because her oldest daughter is still living there, but ultimately they decided that moving east would provide better opportunities for the family just after the war. What would you say is the, is the impact of this decision that people of Japanese ancestry were being forced to make? Well, you know, one of the major consequences was that 4,000 people were deported to Japan, most of whom were naturalized uh, citizens or born in Canada. So that, I think, is a really huge impact. I think that not only had consequences for that moment, but also, you know, has carried on cross generations in terms of the divisiveness, you know, those who went to self-support, those who went to, you know, non-self-support, um, those who were sent to POW camps, largely because they protested the separation of their families in relation to those who went to the road camps, those who uh, enlisted like my father did, uh, and, you know, served in the British army because the Canadian wouldn't, uh, wouldn't allow people uh, men of Japanese ancestry to enlist, the, the ways in which people got divided from each other by the government, but also, you know, physically and uh, materially through the different sites of detention and internment. A little aside here to say that Mona has her own family history of internment, with both her parents and her extended family having all been subjected to internment. Before her parents met, Mona's father was sent to a road camp, as many single, able-bodied men were. Eventually, he ended up working in a factory in Toronto, where, as he describes to her, he was recruited by the British Army to work in intelligence in the Pacific. Very near the end of the war, Canada finally allowed men of Japanese ancestry to serve, and in 1945, he became a member of the Canadian Army. You know, the consequences of, uh, you know, deporting 4,000 people and, and that what the, the experience was for them um, in Japan, um, you know, living under conditions of total devastation um, where, you know, places had been bombed out uh, and the extreme kind of hunger um, and poverty, um, but also many could not speak Japanese. Um, I interviewed one woman whose um, brother was deported. And uh, at the moment I interviewed her in the 1990s, she still, uh, from the moment he was deported until the moment I interviewed her in the 1990s, she did not know where he was whether he was even alive or what had happened to him. Despite deciding to move east, Grace's family still faced discriminatory restrictions, including prohibiting them from living in any major city. Under the supervision of the RCMP, the family left Minto behind and settled in Manitoba. Upon arriving in Winnipeg, the RCMP and Security Commission representatives were there to meet them, and sent them to a vegetable farm in a small town called Middle Church. The living accommodations they were given was nothing more than a barn. Yeah. 
<laughs> it was horrific. But then as kids, we did, we thought nothing of it. But, uh, but when I thought about my mother, you know, uh, entering the barn and told that she, they were going to live there, and, uh, and the walls were covered with tinfoil and uh, manure, and, uh, and as well, uh, uh, they had brought in beds for them, and it's a one huge room, you know, one huge barn, and, uh, and they had beds in there and kitchen stove. And, uh, and then outside pump that you pump water. And for extra water, we went to the river nearby for doing the washing. So, so, and my, my parents went out to work every day, leaving us kids at home. They just took the baby with them. So, you know, at that time as a child, you don't think anything of it. And I'm 11 years old by then. And I was, I was making sandwiches for lunch and they came home for lunch. And they left, and my two brothers and I were left at home. My two brothers running around, and we we had no friends, you know. And that was during the summer. And then in the fall, we started school. My, my second brother started grade one, and he had no uh, kindergarten or any experience. Just started, and and then if there was no class that day or something happened, he would walk quarter of a mile home. He's only six years old. And then one time, I, he, my mother mentioned that his ears were frozen. You know, I mean, like, uh, we can laugh about these things now because it's so ridiculous. When we were living in the barn, my, uh, my, both my parents were working on the farm. And then when winter came, we were moved into a house that was uh, emptied next, right next to the barn. Attending school in Manitoba, it was immediately clear to Grace and her brothers that they were treated differently. In her memoir, Grace describes feeling like objects of curiosity at best. Grace's teacher, Mr. B, had difficulty pronouncing her name, which at the time was still Echo. He continually stumbled over her name, mispronouncing it and causing 11-year-old Echo to return home crying about the attention and embarrassment she felt. Now, how difficult is Eiko? Except that when you look at the word, it's E-I. So he says, Ioka, and, you know, uh, and, and at that time, I didn't know that E-I could be I. But in class, he would call me Ioka and, uh, and embarrass me because I know it's not my name, but that's how he was pronouncing it. She confided in her mother that it was just too much to bear. And so why responded, let's give you an English name for the new term. So I wasn't familiar with many English names, but had known two women in Vancouver whom she respected for being accomplished. Their names were Grace and Lily. And so she said, you're not a Lily. <laughs> so <laughs> you'll be Grace. So from the next term, I became Grace. And after that, I didn't have any problems. Yeah. And in retrospect, how do you feel about that now? Well, I, I, I'm glad that uh, I was given the name Grace because the name Grace, uh, to me, fitted the time. You know, I needed that. But uh, um, so for many years, I was Grace Nishikihama. And then uh, when I got married and intermarried to a Thompson, I decided to insert Echo because I wanted my identification known. Grace Thompson, if you were introduced to a Grace Thompson, you would be surprised to see me. So I decided to insert Echo. Since then, I've always been Grace Echo Thompson. Grace and her family continued to live on the farm in Middle Church until the war ended. So why was harvesting raspberries in a field one day when the owner of the farm walked out to inform everyone that Japan had surrendered? But that didn't mean that restrictions were immediately lifted on the movement of Japanese Canadians. In her memoir, Sawai writes, For those of us who lived in a country that labeled us enemy aliens, we had to endure hardship. We worked on our hands in the vegetable garden, with German prisoners wearing uniforms with a red circle on their backs. 
Even though the Second World War officially ended with Japan signing a surrender document on September 2, 1945, Japanese Canadians weren't yet allowed to move freely into larger cities. So Grace's family moved to a town called Whitemouth, where they rented the back half of a garage. And then, uh, and then from Middle Church, uh, we went to uh, to Whitemouth because, and it all had to do with where my father found work, and and most of the work that he found, he was uh, coming home every second weekend. So it was a horrible period of time, and my mother totally depended on me, and I'm still a kid. But, uh, you know, I'm the one who speaks English. Well, lucky for us is that White Mouth people were very kind to us. Uh, my memory of White Mouth is, has always been positive. There was no treatment as somebody outsiders, even though they knew where we came from. There were several families living there. But then in White Mouth had Eastern Europeans. They had uh, Mennonite. Uh, uh, there were people uh, who had their own... Uh, experiences. But there were a lot of British people, but they were all kind. Yeah. I can't even think of one person who wasn't. The family spent several years in Whitemouth until 1949, when the restrictions imposed upon Japanese Canadians under the War Measures Act were finally lifted. Japanese Canadians were able to vote for the first time in the provincial elections of 1949. People of Japanese descent were now officially allowed to return to British Columbia. But Grace's family, having already been displaced to Manitoba, decided instead to move to Winnipeg. As the years went on, Grace began volunteering as a member of the Manitoba Japanese Canadian Citizens Association, eventually becoming its first female president. She attended a business college where she learned typing and shorthand skills, and upon finishing these studies... She found employment as a stenographer at a cast iron foundry that employed a number of Japanese Canadian men as well. Within a year, she had been promoted to the boss's secretary. Proud to see a woman of Japanese descent in the office, the Japanese Canadian men at the foundry smiled widely at her whenever they saw her in the cafeteria. It was here, too, that Grace met the man she would eventually marry. He was a draftsman and an engineering student of Scottish ancestry. In her memoir, Grace explains that mixed marriages were often still contentious at the time, but happily, her parents approved of their union. Grace and her husband eventually had two children together. Grace, one of the things that I found the most impactful in reading your memoir is this part where you say that you were living a role you created for yourself as that of a white woman in a white household, but that you weren't white and you never could be. And then you said, not all of us living at the margins of Canadian society are unhappy to be there, though we may not be comfortable. What did you mean by that? Of course, uh, when you live your whole life in the margins, then you accept that as your life, which is a second-class citizen kind of feeling, you know, that, that you don't really belong here. And that's how you're raised, because that's how people treated you as an outsider. So, so for me, uh, you learn to live. And my mother always used to say, you're too kind to everyone. And I think that comes out of feeling of, needing to be accepted by everyone so so you don't even think about it you're, you're always sort of uh, being this nice person you don't cause problems to anyone because you are who you are and uh, you want people to uh, accept you you know so i think that you know that you're living in the margins i mean you know, not not really uh, expressed in that way, but uh, but you knew that you were an outsider, no matter what, because of the way you look. And uh, so, so for me, uh, uh, when I married, I married uh, into and uh, lived in a society that I became a dual kind of person. But for me, it didn't last long because. I began to feel as my sons were born that they were looked upon as different 
having a different mother. In the when I separated finally, I think that had a lot to do with it because I felt that while I'm around them, everybody's looking at them. After the birth of her second son, Grace began again thinking about her identity, and it led her to consider a university education. Yeah, I think that because of the way I was raised by a, a Japanese-speaking family, my mother, and as, as my mother said, I was being too nice all the time. So I was kind of fixing myself to be accepted. But, uh, but then as I grew older and realized it's not my problem, it's their problem, you know, but at the same time, I think that I felt that I needed to educate myself. And then that's one of the major reasons why, too, that I left, because I uh, I did an undergraduate degree in fine arts. Then uh, I went to uh, UBC to do Asian studies, Asian art history. And when I was doing that, that's when I really felt that I uh, uh, I had to continue my education, but also that I am different. And, uh, and, and while I was still focused on art, uh, I, uh, I decided that I was um, needing to find out who I am. Who am I, you know? I'm raised by Japanese parents, then find myself marrying a Scottish Canadian. And, and the fact is, my parents they were incredible in that they totally accepted that. In those days, most parents didn't. You know, intermarriages were not, especially as early as in the 50s. And in fact, uh, I even had a, a major marriage proposal by uh, from Japan that my mother turned down. <laughs> so when I think about that, I think my mother was certainly uh, focused on who who her children are. You know that they were Canadians. Yeah. Eventually, Grace and her husband separated, and she continued her studies eventually moving back to British Columbia and becoming a prominent professional in the contemporary art and Japanese-Canadian heritage sectors. In 2000, Grace became the founding director and curator of the Japanese-Canadian National Museum. She was also president of the National Association of Japanese Canadians in 2008 and served on the National Executive Board from 2005 to 2010. Why was it so important for you to engage in and promote Japanese-Canadian heritage throughout your career? Well, I think it's, uh, it has a lot to do with the fact that my mother always made sure that I spoke Japanese and understood the Japanese language. So that part of me was always there. Uh, so the Japanese language remained with me. Uh, but then at the, at the same time, uh, uh, I was not Japanese. I'm a Canadian. People like Grace Echo Thompson and Mona Oikawa have spent decades unpacking the consequences of internment and dispersal on people of Japanese ancestry in Canada. And it's a legacy that continues to live on today. So, I mean, long, very long-term uh, consequences uh, for the people interned. And as I argue in my book, um, you know, I, I try to reveal some of the consequences on my generation and subsequent generations, but um, dealing with the fact of the internment itself, that our parents and grandparents lived through this, has its own effects on people. People continued to experience racism after the internment. That has to be underlined. My generation continued to experience racism. And we know during COVID, Asians also have been a target. Anti-Asian racism has not stopped. And, you know, also living with uh, families that were interned also has um, its effects. And in fact, when I interviewed daughters of, uh, women, of women who were interned, I started with the question, how did you learn about the internment? And uh, I found that women from my generation, I think there was someone from, there were others from uh, the subsequent 
generation, we're really careful in trying to figure that, trying to describe that. And inevitably, most of them said that they learned about it from a family member. And most of them said that they had never heard about it in school. You know, so the effects of the erasure, you know, as you were asking me about, live on in our lives and, you know, trying to find out more about uh, what happened to our families, uh, but with kind of limited kind of resources, you know, in terms of the first generation passing on and also um, the difficulty that has, it has to be really acknowledged and I really thank uh, those who were interned who shared their histories with us because it's a really an enormous kind of burden to, you know, to ask them about uh, their histories. You know, I've learned so much from them and I have such gratitude for them. Uh, I really appreciate the work that they have done. And that's exactly what Grace has done in translating her mother's memoir and combining it with her own experiences in her book, Chiru Sakura. My, my book had originally to do with telling my sons the stories. And then I realized that actually my story needs to be told to the younger generation, that this was Canada. This happened in Canada. And, uh, and also that this is still Canada that uh, there are people from all over the world coming to this country to become Canadian citizens. So the younger generations are becoming multicultural uh, people and uh, we have to respect each other. And and so I felt that more books need to be written uh, on that subject. So I began to feel that uh, I was happy that I wrote the book, not just for my kids, but, but for Canada that Canadians need to know how uh, immigrants feel and how they struggle to become Canadians. And that Canada is a country that every day new immigrants are coming in from all over, and many of them are discriminated people. You know, it doesn't matter if you, uh, what color you are, you experience discrimination. So, uh, So for me, the book that I was writing to my sons became important to me as something that I want to give to the younger generation. Many thanks to both Grace Echo Thompson and Mona Owakawa for speaking to me about Japanese-Canadian internment for this episode. You can read more about Grace and Sawai's story in Grace's book Chu Sakura, more of Dr. Mona Oikawa's research and conversation with women who were interned can be found in her book, Cartographies of Violence, Japanese-Canadian Women, Memory, and the Subjects of Internment. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Louisa Simmons. Special thanks to Derek Vanderwijk, who provided audio assistance on my interview with Grace. You can find more episodes of Juno Beach and Beyond at junobeach.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We're on all social media with the handle Juno Beach Center. The Juno Beach Center is Canada's second World War Museum and Cultural Center, located in Normandy, France.